Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tasty Pints and Open Minds with your hosts, Riley and Jack. Today, we have an absolute saint of a human being coming in to talk to you, Dr. Leanne Dagaford. She is a transplant surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And like we said, just an outstanding human being. She's really fun to talk to. She has a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of stories and a lot of advice on how to get to such a successful place in your career. I feel like we could have talked all day with her. And uh, Jack's going to give you a little bit of a rundown on some of her accolades and some of what we talked about. Yeah, so she did her MD and her MPH down at Vanderbilt before doing a fellowship in transplant at WashU in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. She's done a bunch of research, and she's been on numerous committees, winning many awards, including the AAS Research Fellowship Award at MGH, also the Alfred Blalock Surgical Resident Award. So she's had her hand in research, and she does her transplant uh, service, which is just crazy. Um, the work-life balance is pretty amazing. Um, and so we just felt so lucky to have her in and get to talk to her about all things transplant, access to transplantation for patients, um, improving those. So, yeah, it's honestly, it's just such an incredible field. And listening to her speak on it, being the successful physician researcher that she is, it's just, it's such an interesting conversation. And like I said before, I think we could have talked for probably like five or six hours straight. Unfortunately, we had the time cut off. So we're sitting at what, like an hour and a half, two hours? Instead. <laughs> seriously, what a privilege. Yeah, seriously. So without further ado, here's Dr. Leanne Dagaford. Also, what we have started doing is, have you ever seen the um, podcast or I guess YouTube video, Hot Ones? You haven't? They bring in everyone and they have to eat these super hot, hot wings, but they go up in intensity oh. during the interview. We're not doing that. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no. Don't worry. That's, I'm that pregnant and it. It will not, I will not yes, last. That is very, very, not very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, we kind of piggybacked off of that and we're doing like a pint an episode of something. So our first one was ice cream. Um, nice. Our second one was like a pint of apple cider and then we had um, a pint of beer. And so I brought a pint of um, soda from a local... Oh, nice. Little farmer's market down there, and it looked really good. So I have three options, and <laughs> we can choose. We'll let you go first. We have orange soda, cream soda, and oh, then black cherry. Half cream soda. Yes, that's a good option. Awesome. Damn it. Which one do you want? That was my Is choice. How's your choice? <laughs> 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 yeah. Your yeah, it's going. Okay. <laughs> Is my camera going? Are we, are we drinking nice. it during it or we're just yeah like... you can do it whenever this is a, i went there this morning it's pretty good yeah i was I, I honestly stopped there for breakfast and then they had these little homemade sodas and i was like oh this is perfect it looks really good cool i hope you like orange soda i love orange soda that's perfect then orange soda. <laughs> um okay are we adding we can market yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) if you're in boston go to pizza farm this might be like a nice like asmr moment like (laughs) 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 it just sprays all over the equipment (laughs) 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 it does taste really good too it's really good 
That's good. You pooped oh, on nice. yourself, Pizzi. Well done, Pizzi Farm. Farm. <laughs> Go shop there. Okay. We're ready to get going if you are. That sounds great. Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Sure. This Thanks is exciting. Been here for a little bit. What we wanted to do to just start is kind of have you introduce yourself and maybe give us a little bit of detail on your journey to getting to where you are now. Sure. I am Leanne Daggerford. I'm a transplant surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. I do abdominal organ transplant, so I do liver, kidney, and pancreas transplant. I also do living donor nephrectomies for people that want to donate their kidneys to friends or loved ones or even people they don't even know. And I do a little bit of vascular access surgery. So that's my, my daytime job. It's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah, just a daytime. Actually, well, in transplant, a lot of it happens at nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's also a nighttime job. That makes wow. sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. We, uh, of course, this has been kind of like long awaited since we were going through like our contact book, who we could kind of reach out to. And we're like, oh my gosh, this would be so cool. And we're like, we need a <laughs> so we're so, we're so happy that you're here. Well, great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I think the best way to start is just kind of starting earlier on. Yeah. So for you did you always know that you wanted to do medicine i didn't always know but my dad was a physician he was an interventional cardiologist just in private practice in louisville kentucky so i used to go to work with him and i have some memories of like going to the nurse's station when i was very small and eating orange sherbet out of styrofoam (laughs) cups (laughs) and uh, then i used to go to uh, work with him on Christmas Day. I would round with him and see all the patients before we would go home and do family Christmas. So I had lots of memories of that. So I think it was in high school that I thought I was really interested in medicine. So I went to college thinking of that. But I I actually majored in math at college. I hate writing papers, which is not really (laughs) good for an industrious research career. So that's something I work to overcome. Um, but I thought math would be a good way to avoid most paper writing in college. So I studied yeah. math and all the prereqs for, for med school. Totally. Yeah, um, that kind of explains why renal is part of your uh, your curriculum here and your workforce, because <laughs> renal was all math for us, or a, a majority math. And yeah, yeah. we had a, <laughs> we had a <laughs> tough time with it. Um, I took one math course in college, and it was statistics my freshman year. That's a good one to take if you're going to do research. Exactly. So it worked out, and then I took a secondary statistic course, essentially, when we were in medical school. Um, And that's about the extent to my math, that and calculus in junior year of high school. Wow. And so once you were taking those math classes, too, were you kind of turned away from some kind of math oh no no i i always wanted to do medicine i just was looking for something i wanted to study alongside of oh so it was kind of of, it was kind of a means to an end i was planning on med school throughout see i wish somebody had told us that and we've talked about this with actually a couple of the other people too because we've had um some majors including like civil engineering who came on and people who aren't necessarily along the typical course route for what you think for medical school and i was regular biological science major yeah and i just kind of wish somebody had told me at the beginning that you don't have to do that because i knew i wanted to go to medical school and i thought if if that's the case i need to go through bio i need to go through some sort of science like that and it's not until i got into the application process and now i'm helping do interviews at uconn and you realize that 
a lot of the people who apply don't come from those sciences and it actually could be very beneficial to come from something outside of Right. The typical. Yes. I think as they look for more and more diversity in medical schools, they look for people with a wide variety of backgrounds. Yeah. You don't have to be in chemistry or biology. Although I do think my first semester of med school was particularly difficult because um, when you take anatomy, you have to memorize each little juncture. And when you're a math major, <laughs> you like learn a formula or two and then you learn mm. how to apply it. Yes. And you go in Very and you take different. your test. And my first anatomy test was... It doesn't matter if you know about the structure next to the structure, but you don't know the structure. So it's very, a lot of memorization early in med school. Yeah. So perhaps that would have been a nice advantage if I had had more biochem or anatomy going into med school. I think that definitely helped because I took anatomy in college too. Yeah. And it was very basic level of it. But just the idea of learning how to memorize stuff helped a lot in terms of what we're doing now. Because yeah. we do we do apply a lot of the knowledge in the curriculum too, but it's very heavily memorization focused. Yeah, I would say that's so true. The good news is when you get to your clinical years, it's a lot less memorization focused oh, and a beautiful. lot more logic and <laughs> you know, kind of more like like math was for me, where you learn the basic tenets of something and then you see a patient and they don't usually have you regurgitate something you've memorized, but you're kind of applying the knowledge you have. You're thinking about how they're presenting and, and making, you know, your next steps. So I think yeah. the memorization part of medicine is is maybe a short-lived portion, but an important one because of all those exams you have to take that oh, yeah. to get all the hurdles you have oh, to yes. jump through. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it's um, something that we've both noticed is that the stuff that you memorize in these first two years don't necessarily apply once you actually get into the clinic. Right. And the stuff that you learn as the textbook version of something could be completely different from when you see it. So a lot of it is the experience that you get once you get to those third and fourth years. Right. Yeah. I know. I was just hoping you weren't going to ask me about the, the glomeruli too much because I was going to have to <laughs> oh, phone, no. a friend, yeah. phone a friend, phone a nephrologist friend because they're the super smart. Tell me about Bowman's caps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you were, you were down south for a lot of your life too. And then you came up here. What has that transition been like? Maybe like speed of life or... Uh, people in general how do you find Boston compared to home oh well I love Boston um, but we had not spent much time here so I grew up in Kentucky and then I went to college outside of Chicago at Wheaton College and it's a small liberal arts school and that's where I did my math major and then I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville and that's where I did med school my residency and then I took a three-year break in residency and in that time I did a master's of public health then from there, I moved to St. Louis, and that's where I did my transplant surgery fellowship at WashU for two years. And then I came up to Boston for one night and interviewed and took the job <laughs> um, and moved to Boston. So, wow. But Boston is great. I love that I walk everywhere. Um, I live in Charlestown, so I can walk to work. I yes. love to run. And so I think Boston's an awesome running town. It is. I think the people have been very friendly. I don't know what uh, the, the rumors are about, but everyone's been incredibly <laughs> kind. The rumors and are it's... just about Patriots fans. <laughs> they, they only make up some of yeah. Boston. <laughs> Watch it. Um, what's been your favorite place that you've lived? Do you have one or is it just everything has its own meaning? Everything has its own meaning. Kentucky is beautiful, which I didn't appreciate until I left. Um, hmm. 
and my parents are still there, so I still have a you know a warm spot for Kentucky. Uh, Nashville was awesome, but it's changed a lot. So when I was in Nashville, it was still um, smaller, and downtown was not totally crammed and packed yes. like it is now. Yes. Um, but I love music, and so I loved living in Nashville because I could see live music all the time, which was awesome. That's so cool. Yep. D- did you ever see anyone notable before they kind of blew up? I know a lot of people go there to get their careers started. I don't have anybody I saw notable before they blew up. There's a mandolin player named Chris Thiele, and he was playing mm-hmm. in this total dive bar called uh, the Station Inn, and Dolly Parton came in and sang a song with what? him. Oh, no way. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I mean, it was tiny, and she <laughs> is, uh, so I enjoyed, I enjoyed seeing her. So Nashville was great. St. Louis was fun. There was a uh, forest park is right outside the hospital. So I used to run, you know, in forest park, which I really loved mm-hmm. and everything in the park is free. So that was a pretty cool place. And now Boston, I mean, it's been great. We love it. Oh, it's so nice. I, uh, yeah, I think running has been like my main kind of thing for working out since being in Boston, uh, last year, but like the Esplanade. Yeah. And then I run up to Bunker Hill sometimes too and oh, yeah. run through those so oh, it's so nice it is it's yeah. a very fit town i noticed when fit i arrived yes. coming from missouri to boston i was like whoa <laughs> i think everyone just walks everywhere yeah so that's because the tea is very inefficient it's much better to just walk than i could to get walk stuck to downtown tea. faster than the subway would I get know. me there <laughs> i think that's true and safer and safer <laughs> yes i think you were just telling me one of the like the orange line is down yeah, indefinitely line. for a little while. For a month. For a month. Do you know why? Just it, it wasn't working. Because it, they said that if they were not going to close the whole thing, it was going to take five years to fix. Five years. Yeah, I think How? we'd prefer the month. Like, I don't... <laughs> well, one of the trains caught fire yeah. recently. Oh, great. So. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear about that? No. They're oh. also putting on new trains. That's probably for the best if one caught on fire. (laughs) Um, There was always like a big, I guess, meme or joke at Clemson because the cat bus, which is like our version of transportation throughout the campus, every single year would crash or like catch on fire or do something just like crazy. So it would literally be the beginning of the year every year and there would be a picture online of the bus off the road like down no. a hill and you're like oh there goes the cab bus again <laughs> and you just you just knew don't take that bus take if you're bus. going to class yeah we're walking everywhere that's awesome that's funny so talking a little bit more about your process through medical school and residency and you took those three gap years did you see that as kind of a common thing uh especially in where you, you ended up or is that becoming more common now? Because I know people are starting to talk about it a lot more and especially like taking the gap year between undergrad and medical school versus between medical school and residency. And there's kind of, I don't know, assumptions about whether it's better for you or worse for you. And I, I don't know, what was your thought process behind it? Sure. I sort of powered through, so I didn't take any technical gap years. I just did, you know, undergrad to, to med school and then med school to residency. But for general surgery residencies, a lot of people end up taking time off for research. So I didn't, it's not required, and it wasn't required at Vanderbilt. And it's actually not, you know, at the Mass General Program either. But a lot of people, especially ones that maybe haven't done a PhD before, will mm-hmm. take two years at least to try and do some research time. And I think that's a good 
uh, timeline to do it. It gets you some publications to be relatively mm-hmm. recent for when you're applying for your fellowship. And I think the really competitive fellowships like pediatric surgery or surgical oncology are really competitive. So if you can have some research time that you've built up, that's helpful. For the people that are really productive and able to continue their research in their last two general surgery years, then they have sort of, they've started their process. They can maybe mm-hmm. take it with them to fellowship and, and on to their faculty position. And some people earn extra skills. So like I did a master's of public health, which I thought was helpful. Some people do a you know, science investigation or an education degree in that time or an MBA, depending on what your interest is. Yeah. So I don't... I don't know if there's an advantage or disadvantage to doing it during med school. For me, I was able to get a part scholarship and some funding, so I ended up not having to take out any extra loans for my MPH, which was nice. That's nice. Um, Whereas if you do it in med school, for some, I think some med schools, you end up having to pay Mm -hmm. tuition for an extra year. So, interesting. But I don't know that the finances should be the reason. I think other other things like people kind of where they are in their life, if they need time at that time to have you know start a family or they need to travel or you know someone's sick in their family and they need some time away research is a little bit more flexible than clinical residency and provides for that so and you do a good bit of research now right i do my best best. (laughs) i don't have anything nearly as lovely as this place out here (laughs) i'm impressed Uh, something to aspire to is this lab and all the trainees that are here i'm really impressed i think yeah this has been around for a little bit so they've had a lot of time to figure it out yeah but we'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that research too because we've talked we've both looked into it a little bit and it sounds like it's it's pretty incredible work even if it is just starting up how long has it been going on for I've been here in September. I'll be, I've been here about four years. So four years. we've, I guess that's the extent of my yeah. research in Boston, <laughs> yeah. the four years that I've been here. Yeah. I wrote this in a note kind of before, but there was a publication that you had last year um, regarding outcomes of transplantation for a particular uh, group of people that aren't usually um, eligible or they get ruled out for transplant. I think it was the carcinoma. Oh, sure. State, yeah. And so it made me think a little bit about one of your interests in access to transplantation. And so I was hoping we might be able to speak on that a little bit yeah. um, and some of your efforts about access for transplant. I think transplant within medicine is a really unique field, especially in America, because it's one of the few rationed quantity items that we have. So, you know, if, maybe if you lived in Canada or in you know Europe, you might they might only have so many knees that can be replaced in a year. So you get on a list, mm-hmm. and you wait, and then once your turn, you would get it. But here, if you need your knee replaced, um, for most people, as long as you're medically eligible and right. you have some sort of reasonable insurance, you can get your knee replaced. So you know we'll replace knees in old people and all sorts of people. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so it's not really necessarily rationed. And kind of the same as for the Whipple procedure. You know, the the famous procedure that people do for pancreatic <laughs> cancer. We'll do that procedure on eighty something year olds. You know, that maybe don't have long life expectancy afterwards. But we don't we don't always judge based on that. But for transplant, there's only so many organs we can transplant. So I think that's part of the problem. Is you know, every time you use an organ, somebody died to give it to you, unless you're using a living donor. But, you know, yeah. um, and then 
the person that gets the, the liver, obviously, or, you know, if you think specifically about liver, they survive. But then there's somebody that didn't get that liver and they may die waiting. And yeah. so that's like three people's lives that are kind of all meshed into one one organ for transplant. So when we think about access, it gets a little bit tricky because somebody who gets access means somebody else doesn't get access. And yeah. so that makes transplant a fascinating field. It's fascinating mm-hmm. on the economic side. It's really fascinating on the policy side. It's really fascinating on the ethics side of how do you decide who gets gets what. Yeah, I, th- I think we talked a little bit about some like resource allocation in school and kind of qualities so like quality of life assessment and all that kind of stuff and it it is super interesting do you are you a part of a board too that or a committee that is part of the selection process or is that something how, that you want to be how does in? the selection process yeah. work i think that's a good place to start so for eligibility it's really center dependent so okay. in boston there are well in new england there are i think 14 different kidney transplant centers so okay. You know, you could, if you think about kidney, you could go to any one of those centers and you may be eligible at one and not eligible at another, which is fascinating. So it's not necessarily. So there's not a standardized. Hmm. Not standardized. That's interesting. Oh, so so could you send somebody, say they come to your center and they're not eligible, but you know that they might be eligible at another, just kind of ship them over there? You could, um, definitely. I would say Mass General for kidneys is pretty aggressive, so usually it goes the other way. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Okay, that <laughs> but, makes uh, more sense. <laughs> but yes, yes, you could certainly uh, move people around. Now, for for some areas, there are a few more national standards, and one of them is transplant for liver cancer, so hepatocellular carcinoma. It's one of the only cancers where transplant, where cancer is the indication for transplant. Usually when people get transplanted, they can't have cancer because you put them on immunosuppression that keeps them from rejecting the organ. And that actually means that their body has trouble fighting cancers and infections. And so we usually don't use it. But hepatocellular carcinoma is one, one area where transplant is indicated. And there are national standards for how aggressive or how much cancer you can have in the liver um, and still be eligible for transplant. That's fascinating. I didn't really think about that because I kind of, <coughs> Sorry. I guess I kind of just assumed, <laughs> you're good. I just kind of assumed that if you're in the immunosuppressed category, it's probably unreasonable to do a transplant. But then thinking about like, if, you, if the cancer is located to just that one organ and you can get it out successfully, that's an interesting concept. I should have. I don't know if I had a follow-up on that. Oh. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Well, that, that was the, the case. Yeah. So there's a variant of hepatocellular carcinoma where it's a mixed tumor or it has features of also cholangiocarcinoma, which is a more aggressive tumor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there's a variant where it has like a little bit of the hepatocellular and a little bit of the cholangio. And right now those aren't really indicated for transplant. But as we are doing it all of medicine, we're kind of pushing the envelope and saying, well, are there some patients with that cancer that maybe could be transplanted and yeah. would have better outcomes? And that was what that, that paper was about. We also transplant people for hyalur cholangiocarcinoma, and that's like a cancer that grows right along the bile duct. And when it's not, when you can't cut it out, you can't do surgical resection because it's in both sides of the liver. Mm. For certain patients, we'll, we'll transplant for that. So in some areas, we're pushing the envelope, but the really what we need is more organs um, to be mm. able to, 
to transplant people. And then we could push the envelope a lot because then we would have more of a supply and then everybody that would benefit would would get access. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, (laughs) So I also saw a little bit about um, xenotransplantation and I know that that's kind of an up and coming field. And I wanted to know if that has a capability of maybe helping with that access to organs and how feasible it is to be progressing the field in the next 10, 15 years. Question. I am not Thanks. a Xeno expert by any means. <laughs> yeah. So you picked the one person in Mass General that does not work on animals. <laughs> um, but Mass General has a huge Xeno transplant uh, research arm. And so. Well, it's very new, right? I think Xeno's been around for a while, but the oh, success. Oh, wrong. The, it, it wasn't new. <laughs> <laughs> well, Someone has once said that it's always around, you know, it's, it's, you know, transplants around the corner and it always will be like, it's not, uh, but yeah. it's getting much more prime time now because they just uh, transplanted the pig heart in Maryland. And then in New York, they put in some deceased donor kidneys into a brain dead person and saw the kidneys work. Um, and so I think Whoa. we're getting, hopefully, I think maybe closer to prime time. Maybe we're actually getting to the corner. Maybe we're around the corner. They've kept, uh, I think there's a, a baboon that's been alive for, or a monkey, I can't remember, one of the two, a primate that has been alive for three years with a kidney in it from a pig. So, wow. so okay. certainly, you know, we're getting, we're getting closer. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles. There's a lot of stigma. And I think that's totally. the best, maybe the best news of what's happened recently is it's been all over the media and in general, I think the public's pretty receiving of the idea that um, maybe these organs are a, a new source of supply. Yeah, I, I know we have another interview today of, with a guy who is into some tissue engineering. Yeah. Um, and so it's <laughs> into some tissue engineering. <laughs> well, he seems to be everything. He, um, it's, it's so cool. But related to that, I was wondering about like artificial organ transplantation, if you have experience in any of that and rub shoulders with any researchers in that field. Yeah, I don't personally have experience in that area, but again, I think that's another novel area that's really important to think about. People have tried bioprinting, you know, right. printing organs. Um, uh, you know, do you decellularize and then recellularize with the person's own own cells and lots of things that are going to get above my head really quickly. So I'm glad you have someone else coming to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> but uh, but I think that all gets to the same point, which is we've really need more organs um, to ensure that everybody who needs a transplant really does have access um, so that we're not making choices, you know, between this person and that yeah, person I mean, receiving the organ, that if you need it, you you get it. Um, and that's that's really important. I saw you did an interview, too, with a resident at Mass General at some point, and he was a, like an altruistic donor, yeah. I say. How does that process go? Yeah, so you can, as a living donor, uh, you can donate uh, several different things. You can donate a lobe of a lung, which is pretty unusual, um, a piece of a liver, which is a little more common, but still not very common. But the most common type of living donation that we see is kidney, living kidney donation. And so, you know, people that are interested in donating, a lot of people have an intended recipient, somebody that they know or they've heard of that may need a kidney, but other people just feel like, They've heard that there's a need out there, and so they're willing to donate wow. their kidney, which is huge. Um, the the 
wait time for a kidney in this area of the country is five to seven years. Whoa. And the five-year mortality on dialysis is 50%. So half of the people that are on dialysis for five years are dead at the five-year mark. So while everyone tends to think, oh, we have this, you know, extra, you know, way to keep people alive by putting them on dialysis, it's not the best way to keep people alive. And so an organ transplant, a kidney transplant is life-saving. Mm-hmm. And so some people just are willing to give. So Chuck is the wow. resident. He's actually now a transplant fellow at... UCSF. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) And uh, when he was a med student at WashU, he donated, he donated one of his kidneys to someone who was in need on the list. Wow, that was a pretty cool story. Chuck. Chuck. Chuck Rickard. Good job, Chuck. (laughs) Thank you, Chuck. (laughs) He's the one in the interview that we talked about. That's so. That's so cool. I think I would love if you were able to take us kind of through the process of how somebody matches and how the process of possible rejection works, how you guys get around it, um, and how successful that tends to be. Sure. So each organ is a little bit different. I mostly am an abdominal surgeon, so we'll talk about that. But the heart and lungs also have the same, the same thing. The liver is a little bit more forgiving, so we only match on blood type for the liver. So you just have to have the same blood type. For the kidney, we're a little bit more specific, and we look at HLA, and um, we look at sensitivities. So are there any antibodies that have been collected in the person that they're ready and primed to attack the new kidney? And so we do a pretty you know, extensive cross-match. Mm-hmm. For people with no sensitizing events, so sensitizing events are like pregnancy, blood transfusions, um, prior kidney, you know, prior transplants, things where you've been exposed to somebody else's blood, then Mm -hmm. you're a little bit more sensitized and maybe harder to match. Um, But now that we have, you know, such a great way to match kidneys, that's, um, we've had a lot less issue with acute, hyperacute rejection, meaning you put the kidney in and all of a sudden it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, But even so, no matter how well you match, um, you still need some immunosuppression, so some way to keep the body from rejecting the the new organ and recognizing it as not being of itself. So yeah. that's what you don't want is for the body to say, "Hey, that's not me," and to go go attack it. That's something we we learned a little bit about that at the very basic level, of <laughs> yes. course. Um, <laughs> but it is kind of crazy to think about how much goes into matching somebody to an organ because if you just simply take somebody else's organ and put it in and it's not the exact specific type your own body can figure out that it's not yours and start to attack it which is fascinating to me your immune system is so good at recognizing well some of it some of your immune system (laughs) is really good at recognizing um, self versus non-self and just the ways that it does that and the ways that it's able to recognize that is unbelievable yeah immuno is very cool. It's part of what it makes transplant so yeah. exciting is how much of a team it requires. So I referenced the nephrologist earlier. You know, every morning when we round on our patients, we have an infectious disease team there that's transplant specific, a transplant nephrologist, part of the hepatology team that takes care of the liver patients on the medicine side comes. We have a pharmacist that rounds with us every day because there's so much medic- medication that's involved. Um, and then we have our resident team 
and we have our uh, advanced practice team that's there with us so lots of people and so that's one thing that i think is the greatest part of transplant is it's a team sport mm. and so it's always it just never feels lonely to be honest um, we make decisions as a team and we consult each other a lot and i even operate with my partners quite a fair amount um, so i think it's really fun and very different than Maybe, you know, more traditional surgical fields where you're kind of the surgeon operating on the patient. And when I'm on service, I'm busy and I'm, you know, rounding on everybody's patient. But then when I go off, I hand off to the next surgeon and they round on everybody's patient. So it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if I did the liver last week. Um, My partner is rounding on them this week, which gives me a lot more flexibility. But I, I think that's the team aspect of transplant really, in addition to all the other things we've talked about, makes it a great field. It's really cool. What is a, a week look like for you when you're when you're on? Kind of depends on the week. We and every place has different structure, but most most places for transplant surgeons have a week about where you're taking all the organ offers. So, you know, if there's a, a liver in Connecticut mm-hmm. that comes available for one of my patients, they call me and we look at it and say, "Oh, will this work? Does it fit? Is it the right liver for our patient?" And then when the liver gets here, I transplant it, and then I round. I take the ER calls and consults, see the people on the floor, the consults on the floor. So it's a busy week. The first call mm. week is what uh. we call it here. It's pretty busy. Um, and then we have a week where we do donor. So sometimes our fellows are ready to go out and get those organs on their own, and sometimes they aren't. And if they aren't ready to go out on their own, we'll fly out with them or drive out with them to go to the hospital where the donor is and get the organ to bring it back. Wow. And then we have a week where we like assist. So we often have a second surgeon around for the liver transplants because they can get involved. And so we have somebody else there just to be an extra set of hands and eyes. So those are kind of the three weeks of call. And you can imagine that they're varied degrees of busyness. Yeah. And how, like how many hours a week do you say is typical for a transplant surgery? (laughs) That's a hard call. (laughs) It definitely, yeah, it definitely, is it every single day, it just, when an organ becomes available, then you're in there for that amount of time? Or do you have more of a regimented schedule that then gets added onto by call? By call, so I have like sort of a regular schedule. I have some operative days where I do some elective cases on the donor nephrectomies. I do those one day a week um, Mm -hmm. where I take the kidneys out and those are scheduled in advance. I have a clinic day and a little bit of research time so my week generally looks similar throughout and then and then when i'm on call then it is a little bit more like that like there's an organ available let's go let's go (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you have some warning (laughs) very rarely is it like show up in an hour you know yeah yeah you have a few like you know five or six or eight hours yeah i mean that's really 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 cool though because that's something that i'd look for in a field too is that something you're always on your toes for I know a lot of surgery can be like that, but also a lot of it can be planned out weeks in advance. But when you're sitting there and all of a sudden you get a call like, oh, we're going to go do this. <laughs> and you have four or five hours to prep and you're always have to be ready to go. I think that's fascinating. And it, I don't know, that's just something I always looked for in a field too. And the other thing that I kind of wanted to chat about with the field is competition. Because I know that a lot of surgical fields tend to get competitive and that we're starting to move towards more of a collaborative idea um, in comparison to like 
previously everyone was competing against each other to try and be the best. And I wanted to know how that works in the field of transplant surgery. If there's a lot of competition or you see that it's more like everyone's here as a team. I think at every institution it's a team because you need your other members so much. And you, I mean, you just have to trust them because yeah. Yeah. last week I had a meeting and so I it was out of, out of town. So I finished all over at one or two in the morning and then my flight left at seven. And so I, uh, but I handed off that, that sick patient pretty quickly to my partner who took care of them. So, you know, there's a different level of trust and collaboration. Like I said, we operate with each other, which I love. I love, you know, that it's the norm to call somebody and say, can you come look at this or give me a hand? Or, I mean, if I was the patient, that's what I would want. I'd want, you know, someone to, to be there to have two experts, you know, taken over when things get sticky. So I think that's, maybe more unique in transplant than other fields that don't have as much of a chance to to do that sort of collaborative picture together. I think transplant centers between like the centers themselves probably get competitive because yeah. we all want more patients. So, right. <laughs> you know, if, if Leahy or BI does more liver transplants, we do less, you know, because like I said, mm. there's not there's not enough organs um, to go around. So yeah. maybe there's a little bit of competition there. There's also actually a fair amount of collaboration between centers because sometimes you can't always get your team to the donor site and Mm. so you need someone local that's willing to go and get the liver for you and put it on a plane and send it back to you and so in that sense um, there's collaboration between centers and that we're trusting a surgeon somewhere else to get an organ and same for kidney donors so when we do these big exchanges where We'll send a kidney to California, and California will send a kidney to D.C., and D.C. will send a kidney back to Boston to try and get the most matches. You know, those surgeons in California are depending on me to do a good job taking that kidney out in a way that they can transplant it. Um, So it is is actually, it's pretty collaborative, I would say. How long do organs typically last once you get them out of the body? And Because if you're sending them from New York to California, that's it. What five hour flight, six hour flight, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So they've got to last at least a, a good bit, especially if you put them on ice. But yeah, every every organ's a little bit different. So kidneys usually about twenty four hours, but you can push the envelope. Uh, livers, we like to get them back into the person and within twelve hours. Hearts, the window's really narrow, yes. so they have usually the recipient heart is almost out by the time they get back with the donor. I mean, it's timed really, really well. Um, So each each organ's a little different. One of the really cool technology advances that we've done recently is instead of taking the organs out and putting them in a box of ice, we've been giving them oxygen and blood and pumping them while we move them from the donor to the recipient. So we've been doing that both... Um, for hearts and and for livers and that has been great because it gives you it lengthens your 12-hour window and it also gives you a little sneak peek at how the organs working so the Mm. liver makes some bile it clears some lactate while it's being and you think well this is pretty good this liver is working unbelievable (laughs) so So you can is is this like a little portable machine that you put it in yes it's maybe eh, about the size you know like the size of the table here. So when you take wow. out the organ and you're holding it in your hands and then you place it into this box 
and it continues to do its job and you can just sit there and look at it in a box just going by uh, itself you like connect all the pieces back so <laughs> <laughs> you gotta give it you gotta connect the artery to the mm. to the inflow right, right right and you put the vein in and then there's an outflow chamber and so so there's some work done on the the liver to kind of get it ready and then you connect all the cannula and you put it in and then the hearts um the hearts pump when they put them on their on their machine it, it beats so it's amazing it's that's cool. incredible to yeah. me like to just the thought of you're able to connect these essentially they're just tubes right with an inflow outflow yep. and then the it just continues to go <laughs> yeah you have your yeah, own exactly. triad there you got it um and it just works it yeah. just continues to work it doesn't have to have the body do they take recipient blood for that system they don't for um Whoa, for the for the liver because we talked about the liver is a little bit it's a little bit less immunogenic so it's a little bit more forgiving so we just right. use the same blood type for the heart they actually pull donor blood before donor, donor blood um, and they use that in the pump interesting so, yeah what are the thoughts on if you have a recipient blood sample and then you can push it through the heart beforehand and I guess maybe like see how it adjusts to that. I guess the process of rejection involves the whole body and a lot longer of a period of time than the sure. four hours that you have in the I box. Think the but, other thing is you mm. don't want to, you, you need to save your blood from yeah. here. <laughs> so it usually takes three to five units of blood for I guess the pump, so. and so uh, they don't really want to yes. exsanguinate their patient before they start. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Especially before going into surgery, you don't want to draw it out. Yeah, it's yeah. right that way. Um, um, if, does... Does the donor organ have to match in blood type too? Is that part of the matching? Yes. So I'm wondering, like, what if there is some kind of exposure process for the recipient to give blood or something that's maybe immunogenic in a way to the donor ahead of time, like months or weeks ahead, and like slowly do this thing that I don't know if that would make any kind of difference for when the transplant's actually through. They do do another great research thing at Mass General that I'm not a part of, but I'll just advertise for all my awesome partners. Uh, <laughs> they're very interested in tolerance. And yeah. so thinking about, you know, can you get the body to not reject the organ? And so it's sort of like what you're talking about. But in that model, they actually do a stem cell transplant mm. along with the or bone marrow transplant along with the um the kidney transplant and so hmm. by doing that then the body you know the hope is that it recognizes the organ more as self instead of non-self which is a whole nother area yeah so totally. kind of along the lines of what you're talking about only using the donor to to sort of help the recipient that's really cool yeah wow how does the insurance process work with transplants because that's got to be crazy hectic and uh, I imagine kind of a pain a lot of the times. Sure. We do require insurance, which, you, you know, we talked about access to transplant for indications for transplant, but the other big gap in transplant is access to transplant for people of all backgrounds. So mm -hmm. thinking about race and ethnicity, thinking about socioeconomic status, education, rural, you know, patients that come from far away, northern Maine. Right, yeah. um, how do we make sure that all those people have equal access to transplant. And so I think insurance plays into that a little bit because the big thing is if you transplant the organ and the procedure itself is covered, but the meds afterwards are not covered, then the organ's not gonna last very long. It doesn't do anybody any good. So 
I think insurance is, you know, it's one of the first things that happens when patients get screened for transplant eligibility is do they have adequate insurance coverage? Actually, so for kidney patients, the ones that were on dialysis um, stay on Medicare. And so for three years after transplant, they get all their immunosuppression meds covered. But then Whoa. at the three-year mark, they used to not have coverage. And that's been a change recently in policy and something that people have really advocated for is that we should continue their coverage of their immunosuppression meds because those are a lot cheaper than the patient ended up back on dialysis. So there is a lot of room for policy and advocacy, governmental, you know, uh, lobbying things mm -hmm. that we can wow. do to support our patients. And the transplant world is certainly really involved in that. So if that's something you're interested in, transplant's also a great field because it's a great way to think about like how political things yeah. affect our patients. Is that part of why you went through the MPH program? That was gonna be my question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not, I was, I was more interested in um, more like health services research and thinking about how do you have a an, an way to help patients maybe improve their access to transplant on the front end or their post-transplant outcomes. Um, mm -hmm. And I enjoyed my MPH. It gave me a great introduction to lots of different statistical you know, methods, research methods, surveys. You know, it was sort of an intro to, to um, research process. And yeah. so, you know, that was what I found beneficial for my MPH. Wow. <laughs> it's just, it's a very in-depth, there's every single procedure has so much behind the scenes work too with it. And you are the one doing the surgery, but there's just so much that goes into it yeah. aside from that. And it's cool to hear about um, how many different people play a role in this one surgery that you don't really yeah. think about. Yeah, I listed a lot of the, perf you know, a lot of people, but then the people you don't see beforehand, um, we have a social worker that helps the patient. They all have a nurse coordinator who really is the, the key linchpin that communicates with the patient. They communicate with the team. They make sure all of their studies getting up to transplant are updated. And then we didn't even talk about the amazing OR staff that, mm -hmm. you know, works with us uh, to make this happen. And like yeah. I said, unfortunately, a lot of transplants do happen at nights. Um, and so this is a team that's willing to work at any time. And that's... Um, it's so it is it's definitely it takes every member of the team to make yeah. it happen yeah what's the or setting like when you're in the surgery is it super hyper focused intense or are you playing music in there because like our orthopedic <laughs> surgeon that we we talked to last week was he's talking about playing or well he wasn't he gives the aux to the um someone else in the or that scrubbed in with him and he would let them play music throughout the whole thing. They just kind of be <laughs> sitting there like having a good time while doing it. But I imagine transplant surgery might be a little bit more no, intensive. I, I mean, we play music. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I play country music. You do? Uh, yes. Oh, I Nashville. mean, all those years Shocking. in Nashville. <laughs> so I think I'm one of very few at Mass General that play uh, that play country music, but. Sometimes I'll play something else, but if things start to get hairy and I really need to focus, we have to, no, you have to go back to country. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> even better. I just saw uh, Chris Stapleton last week. Did you? That's great. Yeah. Was he, he up here? He's he up was here. sick. Yeah, he was in New Hampshire, like up on Lake Wimpasaki. Yeah. 
I've seen him a couple times. We saw him at the Ryman in Nashville, which no if you way. ever go to Nashville, you have to go to a show at the Ryman. It's That's the Mother Church of I've been once. Music. It's amazing. So uh, we saw him just after he got his Grammy, um, which was awesome. Um, and then I moved to St. Louis, and I wanted to see him there. And so I got ready to get tickets the way you do in Nashville. So if you want to get tickets in Nashville, you've got to get on the pre-sale list. You've got to like join the fan club. you got to set your alarm, and then you got to log in when the tickets go on sale. <laughs> And so I did that for the St. Louis show, and we ended up in, like, the second row because you don't have no to buy way. tickets like that in St. Louis, but I didn't know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you were just over-prepared so for it. I was over-prepared. That's perfect, though. It ended up well. You had, I mean, we had second row seats. seats. It was awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I went to Nashville one time, and I wasn't 21 yet, so I had no fun. Oh. <laughs> All my friends were out of the bars, and I was like, oh, this is enjoyable. It's great. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sitting outside the windows like, <laughs> yeah it's so fun good food though great food great yeah. food yeah that that was a stretch i was being dramatic when i said i had no fun it was still fun yeah it was enjoyable it's but a little it's a little wild i bet i bet yeah, yeah i've only been the ones <laughs> that's so cool what else were we talking about oh before oh music in the or music in the or Huge. or setting yeah what would be your go-to playlist right now oh my goodness or song if yeah so say things get hairy and you need to like throw something on do you have a certain song or is it just put my country playlist on just put my country playlist on that's interesting so i feel like i go through all these phases of different music uh i've been going through a big early 2000s hip-hop r&b mm. stuff which is interesting mm. so it's like ja rule and that would be crazy <laughs> but 50 cent playing while you're 50 cent i'm just like <laughs> bobbing but honestly if things were getting like intense there's a few disney soundtracks out there or like mulan like was it the, let's um, get down to business somewhere you'll go how far how far i'll go moana that's a good song good i think that would be a good or song <laughs> It's only a few minutes. You can't when you put them on repeat, then everyone gets really yeah. That's, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, yeah. All right, run it back. We're doing the same song. What's yours? I don't. I don't really know. When I study a lot, I do the Interstellar soundtrack. We were talking about that earlier. Hmm. Um, Hans Zimmer. Okay. He's fantastic composer, and you get like locked in the zone when you're listening to him. Nice. So that could be something. Yeah. Um, I also study a lot to a playlist that I have called the John's playlist. Okay. Where it's John Mayer, John Prine, <laughs> okay. John Bellion, John Denver, and um, a couple other Johns are on the. Um, Johnny Cash is in there. Oh, that's sick. yeah. So it's a, it's a really cool playlist, but it's kind of everywhere I because want yeah. That. yeah, I'll send it to you. <laughs> it's like maybe I'll throw that on. John Mayer definitely. Yeah, I've listened to John Mayer for a while. He's so sick. He's pretty cool. I heard he was kind of a yeah questionable dude. Kind of a questionable guy. So. I support, I support his music. <laughs> Great music. Great music. That's where I'll leave it. <laughs> Can I take it in a totally different direction? 100%. All right. I also, I also wanted to check with you before, like, getting personal or anything, and we can cut it out. But I think that it would be... <laughs> I think that oh, good. <laughs> for um, you're in an already unique situation, being in the field that you're in, and we just learned that you are expecting yeah maybe for viewers or people that can have a child like how how do you balance everything? <laughs> how do you make that work because i know that that's a huge problem and I, 
I was actually thinking about that too. And especially you're in such a high intensity field and you're needed, especially with the on-call weeks all the time. So how do you make that work for like the viewers or listeners who are wondering how to have a family while in medicine? Sure. Well, I think for one thing, transplant is a unique field. The first kidney transplant happened, you know, in the mid uh, 1900s. So we're talking recently, Mm -hmm. you know, it happened here in Boston at uh, the Peter been to Brigham Hospital and um, and then quickly thereafter there were lots of great women that are in the field we had talked a little bit beforehand about Nancy Asher but um, I think one of the cool things about transplant is women have kind of because it's such a recent field they've had the we've had the benefit of women being in from the start so my graduating class from Vanderbilt General Surgery Residency had I think eight people in it and three of us were women that went into transplant um So I think there's a lot of room for women in the transplant field in particular. And then in surgery, too, it's getting more and more common that there's more women than men. I think the Brigham class this year has more women than men starting their general surgery residency. So it's becoming a lot more normal, which is good. It's about time (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because we need a, a wide variety of people in the field, I think. Well, I am pregnant with my first child, so I don't know how it's going to work. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so you should talk to somebody who has uh, many children who knows how to make this work. <laughs> but I now things are getting a lot more normal and that people have their kids during residency. They don't necessarily have to do it in their research years. Mm-hmm. And... It's important to start your family when your family is right to be started. And so medicine and surgery as a field is becoming more and more adaptable and used to having that sort of variety of people that are in the field and need time off to to start their family. Yeah. And do you get um, maternity leave for it? Yes. (laughs) You do? (laughs) Yes, I'm taking maternity leave. (laughs) Okay. How much time do you get off? I'm going to take 12 weeks. It is still, it's not standard necessarily everywhere. I was just talking to a woman who's out in California and we're doing the same day, but she's only taking eight weeks. So okay. I think it's maybe dependent <laughs> on where you are. Yeah. Um, and in residency, there's some limitations because of the requirements of how much clinical time you have to do each year to qualify. But I think uh, even the residencies are becoming more and more flexible and lenient in how, yeah. how that's managed. So. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's heading in the right direction. I I think that all of medicine is definitely heading in the right direction and thinking a lot more about how if we diversify our workforce, we also diversify the way patients relate to us. And Mm -hmm. so there's some evidence that people that have doctors that either speak their language or, you know, have their same cultural background have improved care because they come at their health from a similar perspective as their physician. So I think it's really important that we keep working to diversify. And as we do that, we have to make adaptations to our expectations as well. Yeah. But the, you know, we're in Massachusetts, which has great family leave. And so actually the male physicians at Mass General also get three months of bonding time with their family, which is great because if the males are taking it and then the women take it, it makes it normal, right? It's not like... No one can complain. Yeah. Then everyone's on the same page. So I think that having women in the field has added um, maybe some more 
family friendliness to the field as a whole for men included. And the same thing for people of different cultural and uh, backgrounds and sexual identities and things like that. So, yeah, we try and ask um, somebody from each field what it's like to try and have a family because I know that's a very difficult concept, especially for people that are early on in their process. Um, I, like when I was applying, everyone that told me, they were like, do you want to have a family and kids and t- see them? And I was like, yeah, obviously. And I, <laughs> I, I like, I'm sure we can make it work. It's not, it, the field has progressed, like you said, a lot. And there's definitely ways to still be a good parent and have a family and have good relationships with everyone while being very successful in the field. And yes. I think that's kind of a stigma. I think it's a stigma. And it's, I mean, it's a stigma from people on the outside looking in. And probably if you ask the people on the inside, it's it's not the same. So yeah. I, there's a ton of amazing parents that are physicians and surgeons and transplant surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. And they, um, and, you know, the family is, is most important. I've never, ever talked to as someone who's at the end of their career and said, you know, what do you regret? And they say, oh, I should have written one more paper. You know, usually <laughs> yeah, they say, yeah. oh, I wish I had gone to that soccer game or I wish I had, mm-hmm. you know, done this and that with my family. So I think in the end, um, that's where medicine's headed. It's a lot more recognition that we're all people with lots of different parts of our lives and to be well-rounded and yeah. to take the best care of patients, you've got to also have all these other parts of your life. So, Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's a very good sentiment for people that might have been told that. Yeah. 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 We hear that a lot in transplant because people on the outside looking in say, you don't want to do that. You're <laughs> going to be at the hospital all the time. You're going to be working all the time. Um, but actually, I was just at this meeting and this woman made a great point that if she has a transplant that starts at 11 or 12, um, her kids are in bed. So that's kind of nice, right? So she's not missing sure. time with her kids and she'll go home and two or three and see them and do the after school thing and do their homework. They get in bed, she goes back to the hospital. And so, you know, there's some flexibility in the lifestyle and that, you know, if your cases are kind of happening at random times, you can take the times when you're not in the case to, right. to prioritize and be with the, your family and the ones you love. So that's something that I, I hadn't really thought about it in that sense. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I I would be worried about the sleep schedule at that point. (laughs) (laughs) You're up until three, and then you you can wake up and make breakfast for the kids, too. Maybe maybe somebody else makes breakfast. (laughs) Either somebody you live with or someone you pay, they can make breakfast for the kids. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about, like, during your residency or what you're doing now as an attending, are there any stories that jump out to you where you did something or you experienced something where you're like, this is why I'm in the field? Is there anything that sticks in your mind? Sure. I mean, the reason I picked transplant in the first place was actually living donor kidney. So we, I was at Vanderbilt and at the time they didn't have any transplant fellows. So we did a lot of transplant, which was great. And so I think I was a second your resident helping with a kidney transplant. And when you sew the kidney in, it goes from this gray color because you flushed all the blood out and um, and you sew it in and it turns pink. And the living donors notoriously make urine. And so even before you can sew the ureter into the bladder, you can get this little stream of urine. 
And that's what made you say. And I was like, this (laughs) is, this is amazing. (laughs) Um, Because there's nothing else really like it in, in surgery where, and a lot of surgery, you do great work. So my co-surgeons are do amazing things, but they cut out something that's bad. You know, they cut out a cancer, mm-hmm. and they you... bypass a bad vessel. And I certainly cut out something that's bad, but I also get to put in something that's good, that's new, mm. slightly recycled, you know, a new organ. Refurbished. And then it gives people their life back. Um, wow. And that's uh, that's really what first, you know, is the, the kidney first. Now in my research time, I worked at the transplant center and I met a lot of liver patients. And that's when um, I think I was like solidified in my decision that I really wanted to do transplant. So the outcomes are great. I think the Whipple is, the Whipple is like this mystical procedure that everyone loves to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I always talk mm-hmm. about it. But the five-year outcomes for a Whipple are going to be 20 to 25% survival because pancreatic cancer is so devastating. Certainly you can do Whipples for other things and they have very good outcomes. Um, but for transplant, our five-year survival is 80, 75 to 80%. Oh. So, I mean, you think about that and you think about how this, wow. ma- I mean, it's maximally invasive surgery, incision down the middle under both rib cages. You take that old organ out, you put the new one in. So it's it's a huge operation. Um, and then Chills. their outcome is phenomenal. And so it's really special. It's special to meet them beforehand and then to see them back in clinic three months later. And if they didn't lift up their shirt, you may not know they had had a transplant. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I just, I don't know, just the, the thought of the procedures and what you're able to do and where medicine is going in the field. And it just, it makes me happy and smile and giddy because I just think it's such a cool and interesting field. And there's so much outside what's it called in innovation going on in the field too and you have to be creative with it and it's not just one procedure you do procedures with multiple different organs too and i don't know i one of my questions was do you ever reflect on like when you were younger and think about what your younger self would say if they knew where you are now because i i genuinely think about that sometimes and we're still barely scraping the potential of our field. And It'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> you have a huge future ahead of you, I can tell. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I don't know. I think that if you were able to tell your younger self, like, I'm going to be literally replacing organs, saving lives <laughs> in an acute state while doing research, while teaching at Harvard Medical School, while having a family. Do you ever think about that? I don't, you know, you, I, I don't, I don't really think back. I have to credit my mom, actually. My dad was the doctor that I went uh, and rotated with, but my mom, ever since I was little, always said, you can be anything you want to be. Um, and so maybe because of that, I had that in my mind the whole way is I can be whatever I want, I you know, it, yeah. which is true. All you little girls, you can be <laughs> you can do anything it. you want. Absolutely. True for the boys too, but <laughs> sometimes girls need an extra reminder. <laughs> uh-huh. um, it, is, it is an amazing job. I feel very fortunate that uh, I get to be a part of it. Being a part of people's story like that is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, that was deep. <laughs> that, was really, that was deep. That was really uh, cool. That's yeah. I just I got excited when I was like thinking about this interview. I was like, it's just such a yeah. such a fascinating concept. Do you want to wrap up with like 
our fun stuff or is there other stuff i feel like we've been going for a long time i think we're a little under an hour yeah if um how much time do you have we could do a little bit more of the fun questions sure do that (laughs) yeah we can do that (laughs) okay um yeah i don't think i really have any other questions along that oh there okay actually i had two more questions the first one is do you have a pre-or routine like a pre-game routine like do you have anything any superstitions maybe before you go in i don't really have a pre-game routine i do think every time you make uh, you start a case there's like a teeny adrenaline rush and it's not because you don't know that you can do the case because you know you can do the case but it's just enough to make you sort of like zone out all the other million things that are happening Mm -hmm. and any fatigue that's there and then it just gets you hyper focused and and so it's it's not like a nervous rush or anything like that it's just a it's just a little buzz that's like okay here we go we're we're here like a moment of clarity in a way yeah sort of like a a refocus just a moment so i just that like reminded me of when we were studying for the MCAT, there was a concept called like, I think it was the medium arousal theory or something. Yeah. Yeah, You remember that? Where if you're, if you don't have enough arousal, you won't be like focused enough and you're not ready to do it. But if you're um, too excited and too much adrenaline, then you can make a mistake because you're too focused on something and you won't be able to look at the big picture stuff. So it sounds kind of like what you're saying where you're right in the middle yeah. Where it's not too much adrenaline, but it's enough bump to get rid of the fatigue, mm-hmm. get rid of everything else out of your mind. And you're in that medium arousal right. state. And that's where people tend to be the most successful. My mentor, Dr. Chapman from WashU, where I was a fellow, I remember he would often ask when you went out to do a procurement, um, you know, are you nervous? And I always would say, say yes, because when you go out into a procurement, you're taking all these organs, you know, maybe the pancreas, two kidneys and a liver. And that's like four people's lives that are depending on you getting those out without cutting something you weren't supposed to cut or dinging it in the way you weren't supposed to ding. And so Howie's would say, I'm always like, I always feel a little nervous before these. And I remember him saying, that's good, because as long as you feel that way, um, you're less likely to make a mistake, which I think is exactly Mm, what you just said, that when you're like enough heightened awareness that you know, it kind of keys you in and gets you. Yeah, it's that perfect little middle zone. Yeah. There's a lot of OR routines, though, that happen in the OR. And so maybe those are things that I don't indicate as like my own routine, but they're happening. So you're prepping the patient, you drape the patient, same way every time. Um, you do a timeout with the anesthesia staff. You like try and, try and introduce myself. I Thankfully, now at four years, I think I know a lot of people, but you like try and make sure everybody knows everybody. So there are a few routines that are sort of built into surgery, which is great mm-hmm. um, that we finally have those checklists that keep everybody yeah. safe. And so those are maybe some routines that I don't recognize as part of my, you know, getting in the game that are part of it. So. Yeah. We wear loops, so I changed my glasses. So I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking about that. Like maybe you put on your... There's special loops. Infamous loops. Do you have the um, infinity loops that like, they're no. like 90 degree. So no, you can I just sit straight up while you do it. I don't have those. No. Just within the last year, I got my own headlight though. And that's been life saving. That's really cool. Yeah. And then my last question before we move over to the fun stuff is for students that might be 
in the earlier stages of their medical school or in the undergraduate and they're debating where they want to go in life. What would be your pitch for trauma surgery? Well, I'm not going to pitch trauma. You're not? (laughs) (laughs) You said trauma. I won't pitch trauma. (laughs) Transplant surgery. (laughs) Transplant surgery. (laughs) Definitely not trauma. (laughs) Trauma makes me too nervous. I don't want to do trauma surgery. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That might be where you're in too much of the arousal because it's just everything's going on at once. You never know what's going to happen. See, for me, what I love about transplant is I don't know when I'm going to do it, but when they call me, I know what I'm going to do. And for trauma, it's like free air. I don't know. I don't know what that's what's going on in there. So I like to have a plan. So it sounds a little counterintuitive because you think with transplant, how could you ever have a plan? But um, I can, you know, I have a plan because I know when the time comes, I know what I'm going to do. I know the steps. So my pitch for transplant is... That transplant is an amazing field. It changes lives. It makes uh, people not only get back to maybe the life they were living, but in some circumstances get back to an improved and better life. It brings them back to their family and friends, gives them an opportunity to go back to work. So to be a part of that is really amazing, to be a part of the patient story. It's a team sport, so I've said this a few times, but it is not a lonely field. You're always working with other people, be it your partners, all the other staff and clinicians around you. And I love that. I love being a part of a big team. And there is so much happening. So we've talked about um, xenotransplant and tolerance and the future research of transplantation. We've talked about ethics. We've talked about policy. Um, There's a whole part of transplant that's somewhat international, um, thinking about learning from people across the world that do transplant in different ways than we do. Um, There's global health. People have started kidney programs in Africa, so there is a little bit, there's education, um, both for the patients and their families, but also for uh, med students and and residents. So Transplant has a little bit of everything. Um, So whatever your interest is, in addition to being a surgeon, being a great uh, medicine doctor, because there's a lot of medicine in Transplant, um, you also get to be a part of all of these other great um, opportunities to advance the field. It's a young field, so come and join us you can make your mark (laughs) that's awesome that's perfect yeah that is the perfect pitch for not trauma for transplant (laughs) um all right let's do some fun stuff cool all right so we've started doing a segment where at the end of each episode we do a triple crown of a certain field okay so we wanted today because we were looking and we came across your twitter and on your Twitter, you talk about being a traveler. Yep. So today we were thinking about doing the triple crown of travel, where we all go through and we talk about our top three places that we've ever traveled to and what we liked so much about those. Great. That's it. Who wants to start us off? I can start us off because I go. literally just went to my favorite place. Yeah, go. <laughs> and I've mentioned it 12 <laughs> times on this podcast. Um, I just came back from Italy. And it is, it is my first time out of North America, and it was incredible. I was very, very jet-lagged the whole time, though. I tried to stay up through the, through the first flight, and then I ended up just staying up for like 40 hours straight, and then I was exhausted the whole time. So it was a bit of a fever dream. 
I was only there for a week. <laughs> um, You're training to be a transplant surgeon. Exactly. That was the whole thing. That was the whole point. That was the whole point. But it, it was just, it was so incredible. And there was, the culture in Italy is incredible. The food is obviously fantastic. We flew into Milan and we went down the coastline and then we went up into Florence and just so much history and everything about the trip was very, very worth it. I highly recommend it. I I guess we kind of were trapped in the northwest quadrant of Italy, so there's so much we still didn't get to see. Um, but we did like the uh, wine tours in Tuscany region. That was really cool. Funny story, actually. Um, I don't want to put my girlfriend's mom on blast like this, but I'm, I'm going to because it was funny. <laughs> Sally, if you're listening to this, it's not your fault. And it's, it's totally okay. Um, but we went to a wine tasting tour and we did one in the Chianti region. So there's only a specific region of Italy where you can make actual Chianti Classicos. And so we went there, we did the wine tasting. And at the end, I was like, I have to get my mom something from this trip. So like, an authentic Chianti Classico would be the perfect option. So I got her like this little half bottle and we're on our way back. Everyone's exhausted. And I asked her to hold on to it in her backpack um, just while we were getting out so that I didn't have to carry it around all day. And I think she forgot that it was in her backpack. And so when I turned the corner, I turned the corner and there was a bottle on the floor shattered oh. and all of the wine was everywhere. And I was like, but it was, it was honestly, it was a free bottle. I, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna tell my mom that so don't worry <laughs> I ended up getting her um a, a bottle of Aperol spritz instead which she That's liked good. probably just as much so it all worked out I just thought I thought it was really funny <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, of course but yes number one Italy, Italy do it specifically Santa Margarita wow Beautiful. Italian man. Beautiful. And he learned Italian for this trip. I did. Which did is you? crazy. Oh very, very minimal, but enough to get impressive. me by. That's enough awesome. to get me through the train stations and the airport all by myself. It's impressive. And order a drink. And order a drink and food. <laughs> the most important that, Yeah, I was going to say that was the first thing I've learned. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, my first choice would probably have to be Acadia, which is, I was also just there. Yeah, Acadia is incredible. I I started going when I was super young with my family. Um, My dad is a big hiker and outdoorsman. Um, And so we used to camp up there. And half of us did not like the camping. (laughs) And half of us, and I was probably in the side that didn't love the camping so much when I was younger. And then it kind of came around. Um, But yeah, like Cadillac Mountain, that hike, and seeing the sunrise off there is just kind of, it's unbelievable. Like it's the first place on the East Coast to see the sun, and yeah, wow, it's amazing. Yeah. What time did you start your hike? Yeah, we got up. I took a picture of the trailhead on the South Ridge at three thirty-five with my headlamp. Impressive. And then we got up there. We got up there probably twenty minutes before the sun was going up. Wow. It's amazing. I drove to the top when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> All the people that show up in their cars, nice and refreshed. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's a good one. All right. So I've been to Ethiopia a few times. I'd say that's my number one pick. We started going when I was in high school. My dad went for some medical mission trips. And so we took, uh, he took us back as a family. And then we went a few subsequent times. And it is an amazing place with beautiful people and culture, generous people. 
great Ethiopian food. Oh, so. yeah. It's got it. Have you been to Blue yeah. Nile in Jamaica Plain? I haven't. I haven't, but I've been, I've seen it. It's by the bed, actually. So I, I know where it is. Is it good? Yeah. We need to check good. it out. Yeah. Okay. So Ethiopia would probably be my number one pick of places. That's a good Whoa. one. That's a really good one. That's so cool. So do you still go? Um, I haven't been. I went, the last time I went was during my residency, actually. Wow. Okay. So I'd love to go back. Do you have the time to travel now? Sure. Yeah, we can, we have vacation time, so four week, four weeks a year. Plus, I have some time okay. for conferences wow. that doesn't yeah. come out of that. So that's, that's awesome. nice. That's really nice. Okay, my second one would probably be we went to the Big Island of Hawaii, which was really really nice, and we were there for a week as well. And that was in the middle of like a road trip, so we had done the whole South route across the U.S. And we parked in LA and we flew from LA yeah, to Hawaii cool. and it was beautiful. It is very touristy now. Um, we stayed in Waikiki beach and it was all tourist traps. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of like, oh, I wish we had done maybe one of the smaller islands or the North, um, the North Ridge is really, really pretty. And we went up there for a day, but we went, we went sh- shark diving while we were oh. out there without the cage. Oh my gosh. And it was probably like, the best experience of my entire life because they would throw this little scented ball that they had and initially they would rev the engines because the um, vibrations would catch on with the sharks and the sharks would come up and check out what's going on so we would pull up and they were just revving the engines and all of a sudden you'd see like three fins start circling the boat and they were like who wants to jump in and i was like i do (laughs) so i i jumped in first they threw out this scented ball and so I'm snorkeling and you can see the ball start to fall in the water and all the sharks swim right up next to it and just start checking it out in like a little circle and you're sitting a little bit away. So that was so, so cool. And at one point I almost cried a little bit because one of the sharks started coming up because you can't see the bottom, but you can see like 40 feet down and then it just starts getting dark. And I just saw a shark start coming straight up like this from the bottom wall. I was like, I should start pedaling back to the boat. I need to go back. Um, but very worth it. Wow. Very, very worth it. And the people that we were with, are, they know what they're doing. They know how to keep you safe. It's crazy. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Whoa. I think that's, that's like where we're similar to. Because my second one would be um, this island like in the Bahamas. Um, it's called Eleuthera and they have a marine institute there and I went there on like this marine research thing um, when I was in high school and it was the same kind of thing they they're all about like preservation of like these reefs and the ecosystem and so they uh, I was a part of like a shark tagging mission like wow. up on the side no of the way. Oh my and of course before <laughs> I was hor- I was like horrified of sharks too in a way because um, like all the movies and especially like the Jaws culture, like mm-hmm. on the East Coast or something like that. Um, uh, Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard. Um, I jumped on <laughs> the, the Jaws bridge. bridge. Oh, so did I. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, it was amazing. Yeah. It was just, it was such a cool, like untouched kind of island and really cool people. There's like a school down there That's that cool. you can go and do like an abroad kind of thing on. So yeah, I'm with you. Sharks. I'm sharks. into sharks now. I like them. <laughs> that's not my number <laughs> that's not it <laughs> i'm not a district um i i was struggling to pick one of the national parks uh but i guess uh, we went to 
the Tetons and Jackson Hole. So that was very memorable. It's beautiful. It's so we went beautiful. in the summer. I haven't yet been in the winter, but um, our dogs, our puppy's name is Corbett after Corbett's oh, no. uh, up at the top yeah. of Sweet. Jackson Hole. Um, so I, I love that. We've been to a few others. We did like a hike down and stayed in um, the Grand Canyon at the ranch at the bottom. Oh. I took my parents to Zion and my mom and I did this road race oh. up to to Zion. So I think um, Glacier is the next one on my list. That Glacier I is the here. top of my list yeah. right now for national parks. Yeah. I went to um, Jackson Hole in the summer of 2017, I think. Summer of 2017, we did a, a little fly fishing trip up through Montana and Wyoming. Oh, wow. And the Tetons are like astounding they just there was one strip of road that was straight for probably 30 miles and it just ran alongside the tetons and it was like the coolest the coolest view of all time and we hiked up jackson hole because if you hike up they have a little gondola that'll take you down for free so (laughs) yeah we hiked up to the top and then we did i think there were some um, mountain biking on the mountains there we did that that was a lot of fun jackson hole was beautiful I need to go back in winter, though, and do some skiing there. We've been to Acadia, actually. We took our dog, and so that was one of the nice things. Acadia is one of the few dog-friendly national parks, mm-hmm. and uh, he did the sunrise hike with us. No. Yeah. Although we kept him on a leash until we saw, yeah, <laughs> until the sun came up. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good like, idea. What is, what is <laughs> but, yeah, that's it's a beautiful, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. That's All so right. cool. The Tetons, they just kind of, like, shoot up, like... It's very flat, and then all of a sudden, it's just like this majestic. Yeah, like it's similar to the flat irons. Flat irons, cool. Because Jackson, my brother, goes to Boulder. Oh, okay. And he's like living right at the base of the flat irons. That must and, be nice. Oh my <laughs> god, so I cool. know. He sends me pictures every morning. I like, walk into class, and it's just the backdrop, like right along, and he plays pickup basketball, and you can see everything That's off the end. It's unbelievable. Just even landing in Jackson Hole, the airport is yeah. Like, oh the view. yeah. It's just. Yes. incredible it's pretty uh so my third one would actually be zion mm. it, it did you do any of the hikes while you were there we did some did i was some. with my mom so she did great but we didn't uh we didn't do any of the like super the crazy ones, ones. <laughs> the, so i i was terrified of heights oh. like i have i have me and heights don't get along i used to get a little bit of vertigo so when i would like close my eyes i could sway and if I knew I was at the top of something, I was like, that's not a good idea. So my whole trip, that whole trip um, across the country, my focus was on confronting some of my fears. Mm. So like swimming in the open ocean with sharks. I wasn't necessarily comfortable with that, but I liked it. Heights was a big one because everywhere we went, there were super cool peaks. And in Zion, almost none of them had chains or anything or like along the side to help keep you fenced in. And I'm okay with heights if there's something holding me back. <laughs> but there were none of those. So me and my buddy kept for like two weeks leading up to it. We were like, are we going to do Angel's Landing? Are we not going to do Angel's Landing? And up until the night before, we were both like, I don't think we're going to do Angel's Landing. And we were sitting there watching videos of other people doing the hike at like 11 p.m. the night before. And we were like, no, let's do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> <You gotta> go. <laughs> so we wake up super early and we went there to try and beat the rush. And you get up, there's like a whole first half of the hike where you walk up. And then the second half is along the actual rocks and the boulders. And you get up there and there's probably like a two foot wide section where you are walking there and back. 
so people are on both sides of this chain that's in the middle and there's like a foot and a half on either side and then it's like 400 feet straight, straight down and i i'm not gonna i have a video of my friend army crawling along sections <laughs> of it because we just we were way too scared to do anything wow. else um and there were also like seven or eight year old kids running in flip-flops next to us and wow. we were just like how are you doing You're this so brave. Like, yeah you you are so brave <laughs> and we were terrified but very very happy we did it the ending was incredible it's something that we could say we did um don't necessarily have to do it again but we did it once and then the narrows were beautiful too the whole river hike gorgeous so zion was really cool and we only did that in like two days wow it's a busy two days oh yeah it was tiring wow that's so cool yeah I definitely have like the national park bug oh yeah i just want to keep yeah like, i gotta explore after. all of them yeah get one of those maps and just check off all the put, a, put a little pin <laughs> yeah, in each exactly. one yeah maybe i will uh my third one because i still kind of consider it travel in a way at least for now um but boston i love boston um you consider it travel you've well, lived here for two years yeah i guess <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> central connecticut like for all the other between maine and there is kind of how i split my time always um yeah boston the food oh my gosh <laughs> that's like my good. big thing once or twice a week go somewhere kind of like yeah. new and yes explore seaport has great food running yeah like being outside and yep yeah, I love it here. This is where I want to be after school. Nice. Yeah. There's lots of places you can apply. Truly. <laughs> Very good. Yes. I think I'm with you, though. I love the city. I haven't been here that long. This is my first time really being here. I visited once or twice before, but it is unbelievable to live here. I'm a very big fan, and I would love to come back here afterwards. That's great. Right. My third is somewhere we haven't been yet, um, but we were supposed to go to Patagonia for oh. our honeymoon in April of 2020. Oh no! And COVID stole it. So, oh. uh, so is it back in the in the book somewhere? It hasn't been scheduled yet, oh, no. uh, and I don't know when we're gonna get there. We will eventually, but it's it's on the bucket list. So I guess it doesn't count as somewhere Whoa. we've been yet, but it's. That's one of my aspirations. You were gonna be there, so we it counts, there. I guess. <laughs> is that is that the top of your bucket list right now? Is Patagonia? Uh, I would love to do it. I mean, I think maybe with the, the baby on the way, we may have to mm, wait a little bit. Might be a little bit, yeah. Um, glaciers on my list. Uh, there's lots of places I'd love to go. Patagonia. That's so. The southern part. That's Tierra del Fuego. I think. I think so. Yeah, all the way down? All the way down. I remember I read this book. You'll have to do it at some point. Um, I can come up with the name after. I think it's just in Patagonia. And it was um, written by this guy that's like a notorious travel writer. But it's so, it's so cool. It kind of like captures every kind of mystical part about traveling south through Argentina. How it all changes El Campo and like the mountains. And then you get down to the southern point And it's just like unbelievable. It's a huge so cool. space, like you say, Patagonia. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I don't huge. think I realized until we like, had this trip planned, which you know was all planned out, how how much land there is to cover in two countries, and it's like a massive spread. So someday. Someday. We'll someday. make it. Yeah. <laughs> I think my top of my bucket list is Iceland right now. That would be cool. Iceland looks gorgeous. And it's a direct, you can get there direct, yeah. right? Yeah. From, well, out of Boston. Or, or JFK. Oh, can you? Yeah. I think JFK has relatively decently priced if you're flying international. 
I don't know. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's nice. I live an hour and a half from JFK, so that helps a lot. I hear Croatia is supposed to be beautiful. Maybe it's like gorgeous national parks. I would love to. Croatia looks beautiful. Yeah. There's That's so many places, places I want to go. Yeah, I just want to travel. <laughs> I know. Is this the right profession? <laughs> sure. Yeah, we get four weeks plus yeah. conference time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Do you got to just conference pick your conferences somewhere over Yeah, day. exactly. There's a um, Eurospine conference that's right. every year in Milan. Oh, that's nice. There we go. That's something to think about. Throw in an application. <laughs> get, get, get an abstract in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Um, okay. Wrap it up here? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so, okay. so much. Yeah, thanks Seriously. for having this me. This was a lot it's of so fun. so nice to meet you guys. It was nice to meet you, too. Good luck with nice. everything. Good luck with the pregnancy and <laughs> starting the family. I'm sure that's going to be fun, but tiring. Yes, that's what we <laughs> hear. Bit, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yes, amazing, cool. seriously. All Thank right. you so much. Thank you. Great. All right, if you guys are still listening, thank you so, so much for supporting the podcast. This is unfortunately the end of the episode, but as always, Jack and I have left our emails in the description of this episode. Please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions for us as medical students, if you have any questions that you would like us to ask on an episode, if there are any specific specialties that we have not done that you would like us to do, or if you know anyone who would like to come on the podcast and give advice to prospective students or to residents or to fellows, please, please, please reach out. We love you guys. Thank you for supporting, and we will see you next episode.